Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, We are New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Jill Messino, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Rachel Applebaum, author of Empire of Friends, Soviet Power in Socialist Internationalism in Cold War Czechoslovakia, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. The book won the 2020 Luzia Prize for the Best Manuscript in Austrian and Czechoslovak studies in the World War II era. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. You're welcome. I'm pleased to be here. So uh, just a little background information on Dr. Applebaum. She's an assistant professor of modern Russian and East European history at Tufts University, where she teaches courses on Russian and Soviet history, World War II and the Holocaust, and Cold War Europe and the global history of communism. She received her BA at McGill University, her MA at University of Toronto, and her PhD at the University of Chicago. So I'd like to just start with a general question, namely, how did you become interested in this topic? Yeah, so it was actually when I was doing my master's degree at the University of Toronto, um, I had the opportunity to spend a semester as an exchange student at Central European University in Budapest. And before, until that time, I had been primarily interested in Russian and Soviet history. Um, I had studied Russian in high school and had spent, you know, a good amount of time in Russia. And coming to Hungary, I actually arrived in Budapest after spending the semester, uh, sorry, the summer in Moscow, and kind of, you know, flew straight from Moscow to Budapest. And to me, I was just really struck by how different you know, the two countries were, um, this was 2004 and, you know, both places I think were very different than they are today. Um, but I was just very struck by how different the atmosphere felt and became interested in thinking about Soviet citizens who had spent time in Eastern Europe during the cold war. During my semester in Budapest, I was very intrigued by the traces of Soviet history that I could see in the city 
the monument to the Red Army um, that was on um, Freedom Square near Central European University, the Russian inscriptions that were still on the bathhouses and the intercity trains and the metro cars that were actually manufactured in the Soviet Union. They were the same metro cars that I had ridden on in Moscow. And so I was just kind of struck by the similarities on the one hand of that, you know, Soviet power that I could see in this Central European environment, but then also the dissonances. And that made me more curious to wonder about how Soviet citizens had experienced their time in Central and Eastern Europe. So initially, when I started my PhD at the University of Chicago, I thought that I would write a history about Soviet expatriates in the Eastern Bloc. And I decided to focus on Czechoslovakia because I had studied a little bit of Czech before then. And I thought Czechoslovakia would be such an interesting case study with the dramatic shifts from the close alliance between the Czechoslovak Communist Party and the Soviet Union in the immediate post-World War II era to, of course, the Prague Spring and then the Soviet invasion in the summer of 1968, and then the last two decades of communism when you know, the two countries were closely allied once again. So for those reasons, I thought Czechoslovakia would be a good case study to investigate Soviet citizens and their lives in East, Eastern or Central Europe. Um, but once I actually started going to the archives, I realized that was a very hard topic to work on, uh, especially coming from the Soviet perspective, because the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archives in Moscow are incredibly hard to work at they uh, even classify the, um, the catalogs. So you, you can't even see what collections the archive has in advance. You have to write a letter, describe your topic, and then they kind of give to you the material that they think is relevant, but you have no idea like what the full extent of the collection is. So it quickly became clear that I wasn't going to be able to do this kind of in-depth history into what the Soviets themselves actually called the Soviet colony in Prague. Um, that was made up of like embassy officials and journalists and trade representatives. So from there, I decided to broaden the topic, um, partly under the influence of one of my advisors, Michael Geyer, who really encouraged me to make the project, which I had thought of more about Soviet citizens and their, you know, immersion into this foreign Central European environment. He encouraged me to make it more of a transnational project to equally examine the Soviet and the Czechoslovak sides. Um, so I decided to kind of run with that and to look more at social and cultural relations between the two countries. And then through that research, I and you know, getting into the archives in both Moscow and Prague, I kept seeing the term friendship um, and it kept coming up. And I was really struck by that because I didn't set out to write about friendship or to think about the relationship between the two countries in those terms. But I became so interested in what I saw is this paradox between the story that we're always told about Soviet relations with Eastern Europe, you know, this, uh, the story of political repression and the story of military force, which of course are obviously the story that we all know for a good reason. Um, but I wanted to know how those forms of what we could call hard power, um, how they coexisted with this history of friendship that I kept seeing running through the archives things like student exchanges, friendship societies, pen pal correspondences, mass tourism, veterans relations, and the like. Yeah, so that touches on my next question, in fact, which is the title, Empire of Friends. And 
what you mean by empire of friends. And you obviously noted why you chose that as your lens of analysis between uh, the two countries. But um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that informed the topics that you address in the book, and also the sources you use, which are really impressive. I mean, Czech and Ru- Russian archival sources. Thank you. Um, so I came to the term Empire Friends pretty late in the research process. It was actually, I think, after I had finished my dissertation. Um, it really, so I, I started the project also thinking, and this went back to the first iteration of the project when I was interested in looking at kind of Soviet, the Soviet colony, quote unquote, um, in Czechoslovakia. I was interested in examining the relationship between the Soviet Union and its East European satellite states from an imperial perspective. Um, And initially, I think I was thinking very much about, you know, oh, the Soviet Union was an empire, you know, and there were these similarities between the British or the French in, in, you know, Africa or Asia. And as I got further into the research, I realized that this was, I think, an imperial relationship, but it really didn't have that much in common with those more um, familiar West European empires. I mean, there were no you know, racial differences um, between the colonizer and colonized, if you even want to use those terms, which I, I don't think I quite would. Um, and the power dynamics were very different. Um, you know, the Soviet presence in Eastern Europe really wasn't a traditional empire because for one reason, the East European satellites all ostensibly maintained their sovereignty even during the Stalinist period. Um, But also what we think of as the traditional hierarchies of empire with the metropole, you know, being kind of more economically developed um, than the colonies, that was not the case in the Soviet relationship with Eastern Europe. Um, Czechoslovakia, in particular, but also Poland, East Germany, uh, they were more economically developed than the Soviet Union. Czechoslovakia was more industrialized than the Soviet Union. Um, it had a higher standard of living. It had a long history, as you know, did Poland and um, Hungary, you know, and even I think Romania. Though so you can correct me, um, but had a long history of you know close ties with Western Europe, and had been in some ways really sort of integrated with the West. Uh, before the Cold War. So that traditional empire um, paradigm didn't really work for describing Soviet relations with Eastern Europe, where the power dynamics in some ways are kind of turned on their head. So I wanted to get at a term that would really encapsulate what I saw as the paradox of this relationship, that for sure the Soviet Union held the the political power. Um, It was the first socialist state, you know, and it was Um, enforcing socialism in these countries through, especially in the Stalinist period, you know, through political oppression, like show trials, for example, um, you know, or mass arrests. And also, of course, most famously enforcing that power through military means, through the invasions of, um, you know, sending troops into Hungary in 1956 and Czechoslovakia in 1968. But this was a power that was also enforced through the idea of friendship. Um, And there was a strong idea, um, you know, from the Soviets that they were building a socialist world, as they called it, 
um, that would be based on close contacts between socialist citizens across national borders in the realm of everyday life. And so that led me to come up with this term empire of friends that I thought well encapsulated that this was a different kind of empire um, that the Soviets constructed. And also, I think, a different lens for us to view Soviet power more generally. Um, and I actually, since finishing the book, I've been working, like to fast forward a little bit, I've been working on a new project about Russian as a world language that's taken me to um, the Global South and, I mean, at, at least through my sources, to the Global South. And I've been doing a little bit of research on Afghanistan and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And it makes me feel even more that that term empire friends is really valid for thinking about Soviet power relations beyond the Eastern Bloc. Um, you know, that the Soviet Union, when it invaded Afghanistan, it was constructing these, you know, clubs of friendship um, at local schools and having Afghan children correspond, you know, with Soviet children in pen pal correspondences and showing the same films about World War II um, in these Afghan schools that the Soviets had been showing in Eastern in the Eastern Bloc. So I, I do think the term empire friends can also help us to think about Soviet power more globally. In terms of the sources um, that I used or the topics that I examine in the book, I tried to look at, I, I, I sort of separate them, I guess, into four categories. One is the export of Soviet culture abroad, um, particularly film, music, fine arts, and literature. And I felt like these were the ways primarily that Eastern Bloc citizens, and in my case, you know, citizens in Czechoslovakia, learned about the Soviet Union, particularly in the Stalinist period when it wasn't possible for them to travel there um, in person. So they kind of got to know the Soviet Union through Soviet cultural exports. So that's why I focused on culture. And then I look at interpersonal exchanges um, or interpersonal contacts. So these include things like student exchanges, pen pal correspondences, mass tourism, which became the largest um, means of face-to-face -face contacts between Soviet and Czechoslovak citizens from 1955 through the end of communism. Um, and I also look at friendship societies which was kind of something natural to look at since I was studying the topic of friendship. There was um, a mass friendship society called the Union of Czechoslovak Soviet Friendship in Czechoslovakia that actually had pre-war origins, but became the second largest mass organization in communist Czechoslovakia with, depending on what period you were looking at, you know, between one and a half and I think two and a half million members in a country of 15 million people. Um, and in the Soviet Union, there was a friendship society with Czechoslovakia that was founded in 1958 in Moscow as well that became one of the means for ordinary Soviet citizens to engage in friendship with Czechoslovakia. So the friendship societies were natural sources for me to look at. And then, so that's the sort of interpersonal relations um, then I look at the trade of consumer goods. This was something that I kind of came to through friendship propaganda and realizing how much that propaganda emphasized commercial contacts between the two countries and um, particularly tried to, 
that friendship propaganda tried to kind of frame Czechoslovakia as a country with a more advanced consumer society than the Soviet Union. Maybe we can talk about that later on. But I thought that that was something really important for me to talk about in the book. And that fit very well in with, you know, what I think is a very rich literature on socialist consumption. And then finally, the fourth area that I look at in the book, in terms of kind of subtopics, is about the legacy of the Soviet army's liberation of Czechoslovakia in 1945 from the German occupation. And I follow that through the post-war period and look at how um, Soviet veterans and the Czech and Slovak civilians um, that they had encountered in 1944 and 1945 during the liberation, how they maintained those contacts or didn't maintain them over the years. So, so that those are kind of the main areas of, of contact that I look at. Um, and, you know, that's, those are sort of my reasons for, for why I examine those particular areas. Yeah, I mean, I was blown away by your sources. They're incredibly rich, and they really help paint this multidimensional portrait of this relationship. And of course, then in everyday life and cultural history perspective that, as you noted earlier, helps to provide nuance to our conventional understanding of the relationship and, of course, also challenges uh, those paradigms. I'll move on to discussion of the chapters now. And you just mm-hmm. noted uh, the liberation and the immediate post-war period. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, the nature of uh, Czechoslovak and Soviet relations during liberation and then in the immediate post-war period. And then maybe talk a little bit about how things change after the 1948 coup. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um so first, I, I guess, you know, a number of terms that I use in the book and in our conversation today are kind of complicated or, um, you know, in some cases, somewhat controversial terms that I, I think it's just worth noting. So sometimes, you know, I refer to Czechoslovakia as primarily as Eastern Europe in the book. Um but of course, you know, we know geographically it's Central Europe and that those terms are, are fraught. So I, I don't say it with any particular political meaning. Um, and, and the same with liberation, that that is um, somewhat of a, a you know, a, a complicated term in this case, because, um, well, for, for reasons that, that I'll discuss, I think, in a minute. But just to say that, that I'm aware that this is a complicated term, it's the term liberation was obviously a term that the Soviets used. It was also certainly the term that was officially used in Czechoslovakia throughout the communist period to refer to the Soviet army um, entering Slovakia first in the fall of 1944, and then the Czech lands, um, you know, culminating in the liberation, quote unquote, of Prague in May 1945. Um, So, the liberation, if we use that term, was the moment of, I would say, the most kind of emotional and direct forms of contact between Soviet citizens in the form of Soviet soldiers in the Red Army and Czech and Slovak civilians. Um, so the friendship project that I describe in the book becomes a much more, in the communist period, kind of formulaic um, top-down project, whereas in 
44 and 45, you have these kind of spontaneous contacts between Czech and Slovak and Soviet citizens um, that are, you know, largely kind of unmediated from the top um, and are often very emotional. So you had Soviet soldiers who were wounded, um, who, you know, were taken in by Czech or Slovak families. You also had Soviet prisoners of war um, who escaped and, and were taken in um, by local families. And then, you know, when you get to like May 1945, you just had all of these kind of mass encounters um, in Prague, romantic encounters between Soviet soldiers and, and local women. Um, I found this, this really interesting, actually, you know, thanks to a recommendation of a friend, this really interesting archival collection at the National Archive in Prague of photographs um, that Czechs took during the liberation in May 1945 and then later submitted in a 1954 contest for a friendship magazine. Um, and so I got to see there are these, you know, photographs of Soviet soldiers, um, you know, kissing and embracing Czech women, photographs of Czech families hosting these soldiers, you know, for drinks and for meals, lots of photographs of Soviet soldiers holding local children um, and babies. And, you know, these were contacts that were then remembered um, very emotionally by people on both sides. So, you know, I, I, I quote in the book one Soviet soldier who said something like, you know, of all the countries that we Soviet soldiers um, came to be in during, the world, during World War II, it was in Czechoslovakia that we felt you know, the, the greatest reception, um, you know, that we experienced the most enthusiasm. And obviously the reception of Soviet soldiers was very different in Czechoslovakia, which had been occupied by Nazi Germany in the Czech lands, you know, for six years. Um, then this, the reception of Soviet soldiers in Hungary or in Germany, um, where they were, you know, the enemy army. Um, and of course, we know that um, the Soviet army engaged in mass rapes um, against local women in Germany and in Hungary, um, which you know certainly did not help to improve their reputation among the locals who, who saw them as occupiers, not as liberators. But for the large part, I would say that in Czechoslovakia, um, they were seen as liberators, though the story is complex. And I discuss in the book how certainly there wasn't the same level of mass rape um, that was used against civilians. But I did find a number of complaints in the archives about Soviet soldiers um, who were accused of raping local women, both Czech and German women in the Czech lands, um, and also engaging much more widespread in looting um, you know, in plundering things like linens or jewelry, um, watches. Um, so it, it, it was kind of a fraught history from the beginning and one that I think has these sort of twin lines of friendship and violence. So those seeds are planted right in 1945. And then I, I, I think those twin stories of friendship and violence coexist together in the Soviet-Czechoslovak relationship you know, up until the collapse of communism. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In terms of how the relationship between the two countries changed in, I, I guess we should say that there's a liberation in those spontaneous interactions in 1945. The Soviet army pulls out, though, um, of Czechoslovakia by the end of 1945. They have an agreement with the Americans, who also had troops um, in parts of the Czech lands, that each army would pull out by the end of the year. So it happened to be that Czechoslovakia was the only future Eastern Bloc country that was not occupied long term by the Red Army um, after World War II. So that ends that kind of spontaneous moment of those direct encounters that was characterized by friendship on the one hand, but also by you know, a certain level of violence on the other. And then from 45 to 48, Czechoslovakia had a national front government that was made up of a coalition of parties um, of which the, communi- the Czechoslovak Communist Party was the most powerful. And the Czechoslovak Communist Party, which controlled a number of important ministries in the country, including you know, the Ministry of Information, wanted to establish close relations with the Soviet Union um, you know, wanted to build socialism in Czechoslovakia, though they had in mind that they would be building a unique Czech national road to socialism that would differ from the Soviet model. So they were very receptive to Soviet culture. They actually, the Ministry of Information, signed an agreement with the Soviets to import 100 films per year. Um, they signed that agreement in the spring of 1945, basically exactly at the time of the liberation and films, Soviet films were supposed to make up 60% of the playing time in Czechoslovak theaters. Um, so there's, there's this intense kind of cultural relationship that exists during the National Front government from 45 until February 48, where Soviet cultural imports inundate Czechoslovakia. Um, but there aren't that many other forms of contact between the two countries in the social realm. Uh, You have a lot of Czech communists who are really eager to go to the Soviet Union. The Soviets don't really want them to come. The country's been devastated by World War II. And the Soviets are also undergoing their own xenophobic anti-Western campaigns that are really, they're called anti-Western, but they're really about all foreigners. So it's not really possible for most Czechs and Slovaks to visit the Soviet Union. Instead, they get to know the Soviet Union through those cultural imports but there's a fairly free press between 45 and 48 in Czechoslovakia. So that relationship is kind of negotiated on the Czechoslovak side. And often culture is a way that um, Czech art critics or film critics or journalists can critique the political relationship between the two countries when they in an atmosphere where they can't outright say, like the two countries have a very close alliance and they can't outright say like, you know, the Soviets are acting imperialist here, but they can critique Soviet culture. That all changes in February 1948 after the Czechoslovak Communist Party seizes power in a coup. Um, you know, Czechoslovakia officially becomes a socialist country, a member of, you know, the nation Eastern Bloc, and enters headlong into the Stalinist period 
And from especially after June 48 with the Tito-Stalin split, it becomes really impossible to have any kind of open discussions even about Soviet culture and Czechoslovakia that are even remotely critical. Um, And the idea that these Czech communists had that they might be able to build their own form of socialism that would reflect the unique conditions in Czechoslovakia, that's just shown to be totally impossible. The Soviets are not going to allow that. So instead, what they do is they just create a cult of the Soviet Union in Czechoslovakia. There was actually a slogan that was used ubiquitously, which was the Soviet Union is our model. And the Soviet Union was supposed to be the model for Czechoslovakia in all aspects of life. I remember going to the archives in Prague and, you know, you look at the Ministry of Culture and you'd see literally from A to Z, from like aquariums to zoos, all the ways that the communists in Czechoslovakia were trying to model their society after the Soviet Union. So there's a there's a very, um, I would say, pronounced shift from that period of the National Front government to the period of Stalinism in Czechoslovakia in terms of the relationship with the Soviet Union and initially this period of sort of questioning and debate and thinking of the Soviets almost as a kind of partner, um, friendship as a kind of partner to friendship in the Stalinist period as a form of supplication. So I was wondering if then you could kind of continue with this discussion with respect to students then who end up going abroad to the USSR. So in chapter two, you talk about the student exchange program and it's Czechs who are going abroad to the USSR. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the nature of the program. Who were those Czech students who went abroad? What what was their profile, their background, and what was the nature of their experiences? Yeah. So I should say that the book is organized chronologically and each chapter kind of focuses on a different chronological period through a particular theme. So I examine the Stalinist period in the book by looking at student exchanges. The word exchange isn't quite accurate because in that period, it was only Czechoslovak students who went to the Soviet Union. Soviet students did not come to Czechoslovakia until the late 50s. Um, But this was one of the only forms at the time available for Czechoslovaks to experience life in the Soviet Union, you know, for long periods of time. Um, So it might be possible to travel on an official cultural delegation to the Soviet Union where you're there for a few days and everything you see is very choreographed and scripted. These students who went and there were probably, you know, I I don't have like overall statistics for the whole period. But, you know, I remember in 1952, there were over 700 Czechoslovak students in the Soviet Union. So there were probably maybe for the whole Stalinist period, you know, just under 2000 or something like that, of these students who went there. And they would go for several years. They went to study at Soviet universities for either their whole undergraduate degree, or in some cases, they went as graduate students. So they would be there, you know, for four or five years. Um, Most of them went to Moscow and Leningrad. Um, Some went to a few other Soviet cities. They were predominantly members of the young Communist Party elite um, in Czechoslovakia. Many of them were party members. I think all of them, if they weren't party members, they were members of the Czechoslovak Union of Youth, 
Um, so, you know, the, the party's organization for youth. Um, and they were, most of them had proletarian or peasant backgrounds. Um, so they were really in the position of being the people who were kind of the most primed to be impressed by the Soviet example. Um, they were sent there by their government to learn from the Soviet example. Most of them studied in technical fields, um, things like, you know, engineering, construction, chemistry, etc. So they were really learning how to build a socialist economy back in Czechoslovakia. And that's why they were sent there. Do you want me to talk about like what happens to them while they're there? Sure. If you just want to say a few a few sentences about what they experienced there. And I found it particularly striking that there were limitations on um, the relationships they could have with Soviet citizens, particularly on an intimate level. Yes, that's right. So, you know, like I said, they were sent there on the one hand for these very practical reasons of kind of learning how to build a Soviet style economy. Um, and to learn directly from Soviet political organizations like the Komsomol, the Soviet youth organization. But they were also sent there under the aegis of this friendship project that they were supposed to, you know, make friends with their Soviet um, colleagues. You know, they lived in dorms with Soviet citizens. So constantly this relationship was being discussed in terms of friendship from both sides, from the Czechoslovak side and from the Soviet side. But then what happens that's quite striking is that, not surprisingly, you know, these are college students and they're mostly men. Um, they were like 75% men. And many of them start romantic relationships with Soviet women. And in 1947, the Soviet Union outlaws marriages with foreigners, all foreigners from any country. So this immediately affects these relationships it's only marriage that's outlawed, but because marriage becomes illegal, transnational marriage, even transnational relationships of, of any you know, sexual kind, romantic kind, are basically condemned. Um, so these students are you know, often called before Komsomol committees and berated for these relationships. The Czechoslovak men are sent homes. In some cases, they have children with Soviet women. Um, and they're, you know, forced to be separated from their girlfriends and, and their own children um, and sent back home. So that created this real dissonance. Um, it really highlighted this paradox of official friendship and yet, you know, fear of kind of the ultimate consequence of that friendship, which, which would be romance and, and you know, marriages and, and children. Yeah, I found it particularly tragic in some cases, and it really underscores those tensions and, as you say, contradictions associated with this friendship project as it played out on an everyday level. Yeah, I, th I think it, I mean, I think it shows something that's important, which is that in the Stalinist, in the period of late Stalinism, post-war Stalinism in the Soviet Union, you know, the Soviets now have influence in Eastern Europe there, or, you know, building this sort of nation empire, they have these new satellite states in Eastern Europe. And they're really kind of trying to figure out how do we have this international role, you know, on the one hand, they're talking about friendship and about these relations in terms of friendship. But on the other hand, as I said earlier, the Soviets are undergoing the Zdanovshina, which was, you know, the most kind of virulent xenophobic campaigns 
that really ever happened in the Soviet Union. Um, so having any kind of foreign contacts, if you were a Soviet citizen in this period, could be very dangerous. And so it's a weird position where the Soviets have invited these foreign students to their universities, but and they invite them in the, the fall of 1946, which turns out to be the exact moment when the Zdanovshina begins. So then they have this problem, like we have all these foreigners here, but the Soviet um, administration and the Komsomol, they all become terrified of actually having any interactions with those foreigners um, because they're so afraid of you know, being accused of, um, you know, kowtowing to the West and all the, the kind of terms that were used at the time. Okay, so let's move on to chapter three and um, obviously shift the geographic focus back to Czechoslovakia. Uh, in this chapter, you explore how liberation, which we're putting in quotes, was represented in, in public spaces, but also in commemorative practices and film and through tourism. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this, provide some examples, and then maybe indicating where this narrative about the liberation changed over time. Yeah, so in that chapter, I look at the legacy of the liberation from the early post-war period through the late 1960s. Um, And I discuss how initially the legacy of the liberation is largely seen in terms of monuments, um, you know, from the summer, basically, of 1945, Czechoslovak citizens started to build, you know, monuments in towns that had been liberated by the Soviet army. Um, In some cases, they constructed cemeteries where Soviet soldiers were buried, um, you know, and with um, sculptures or tombstones with special inscriptions thanking the Red Army Um, And you can find these still today, like all over the Czech Republic. Uh, And there were some more notable, you know, sculptures as well. There was one um, in Prague that right now is outside of the central train station, but in the communist period, it was actually on the old town square of Prague that showed that was um, a sculpture that was constructed in 1950, I think that showed a Soviet soldier embracing a Czech man. Um, And then there was, you know, perhaps most infamously, the largest sculpture of Stalin in the world was constructed in Prague on Letna Hill. And it was actually unveiled in 1955. And it, it showed, you know, this huge figure of Stalin and then him, you know, all of these, these smaller reliefs of, Czechoslovak citizens who are kind of looking up to him adoringly. And on the inscription, it said, you know, to Stalin, our liberator. So that was kind of the apotheosis um, of these monuments to the Soviet army, framing the Soviet army as the liberator of Czechoslovakia and um, stressing Czechoslovak's gratitude and indebtedness toward the Soviet Union. So indebted toward them for the liberation from fascism, but also indebted toward them for exporting communism to Czechoslovakia. And so that really matched the hierarchy of what I call the friendship project in the early post-war period or the Stalinist period when 
this is a, a friendship that's really unidirectional from the Soviets to the Czechoslovaks. You know, again, like I said earlier, the Soviets are supposed to be the model for Czechoslovakia. But what happened was after Stalin's death in 1953, there's a big shift in relations between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia that's motivated partly by de-Stalinization in the Soviet Union and an attempt to make this friendship project, you know, from the Soviet side kind of more reciprocal, more of a focus on internationalism, on getting to know Czechoslovak culture. And that's reflected in terms of relations that begin to form in the mid to late 1950s between Soviet veterans and the Czech and Slovak civilians that they had originally encountered in 1944 and 45. These people had, in some cases, exchanged letters in the first year or so after the war, um, but then those correspondences were cut off, and there's basically no contact until after 56 or so. Um, and in that time, by the late 1950s, Local Czechoslovak organizations like veterans committees, the women's union, they start to um, write to Soviet veterans organizations and say, you know, in our town, we have a monument to the Soviet army. You know, your sons are buried here. In some cases, they find the mothers of, of these soldiers and, you know, send them pictures of the graves, invite them to Czechoslovakia to come visit. So there's a kind of reestablishment of these ties between veterans and the civilians they encountered. And what I found so particularly fascinating is that in letters that veterans wrote to various organizations, um, like the Soviet Committee for War Veterans and some of the friendship publications, the veterans from the late 50s and 1960s often expressed gratitude toward the Czechs and the Slovaks for having saved their lives. You know, they remembered that they were wounded in the war and that a particular Czech family took them in and cared for them. You know, where they remembered that they were an escaped POW and, you know, this, this kind Czech woman gave them food or, or whatever. Um, and so by expressing that gratitude, they really turned that hierarchy of the Soviet Union, you know, and its superiority over Czechoslovakia on its head. And they turn that language of indebtedness um, on its head. So it becomes the Soviet soldiers, the veterans, who are actually indebted toward these Czechoslovak civilians for having saved their lives. So I, I really use that chapter to kind of help show that shift in the relationship that occurred in the post-Stalinist period. Yeah. Do you think you could uh, talk just briefly about some of the films that came out at that time? Oh, yes. So... Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's one major film um, in 1959. There's a Czechoslovak Soviet co-produced film called May Stars um, that's directed by the Soviet director Stanislav Rostotsky, and it's based on a Czech writer named Ludvik Ashkenazi. He wrote a series of stories about the liberation. Um, and particularly these stories center on like the first two days after the Soviet Union liberated Prague in May 1945. And the film is really interesting because it consisted of both Soviet and Czechoslovak actors. The Soviet actors spoke Russian. The Czechoslovak actors spoke Czech. It was filmed in Prague. 
And the film is all about these kind of interpersonal relations that occurred during the liberation. One vignette is about a Soviet officer who stays with a Czech family and, you know, plays with the young child of the family who reminds him of his own son who was killed by the Nazis. Um, Another one of these vignettes that I focus on in more detail in the chapter is about a romance, a brief romance that occurs when this Soviet lieutenant who is looking for chalk to mark cleared mines, he comes to a local schoolhouse. He meets a young Czech teacher. Um, you know, she gives him the chalk to mark the cleared mines, and they engage in this brief flirtation that culminates in a kiss. He then writes his address for her in Moscow on the blackboard. Um, but in the strange feature of this film, and that particular episode was written just for the film, it wasn't part of that original short story collection by Ludwig Ashkenazi. In the film, um, when she, this school teacher comes back at the end of the day, the soldier's address has been erased from the blackboard. The school director has come in and erased the blackboard. So it's a strange film because it was a film that was made to be propaganda promoting the Friendship Project and kind of showing how the origins of this post-war project are in the liberation of 1945. And yet there's hints in the film about what happened in reality, which is that those connections that were those really intimate connections that were made in 1945 weren't able to survive the peace because of the xenophobia of the Stalinist period. So I, I talk about the film because I think it's really interesting, again, how this kind of official piece of propaganda shows in it all of these um, kind of subliminal fissures about the fragility of friendship between the two countries. Yeah, and I, I'd actually like to continue a bit on the topic of film, if you don't mind. I'm thinking about, you dress a lot of the propaganda films and thinking about, obviously, the Czech New Wave and how you have a new generation coming of age and how on an everyday level Czechs respond to these various types of films. Yeah. So um, one thing that happens, I think, is that in the Stalinist period, relations between the two countries on one level are kind of simple because it's very clear what Czechoslovakia is supposed to be getting out of this relationship. They're learning how to build Soviet-style socialism. In the realm of culture, they're learning how to produce socialist realist art. That's the only form of art that's acceptable. Now the situation becomes much more complicated in the later 50s and 60s, you know, after Stalin's death. Um, in both countries, first the Soviet Union, then Czechoslovakia undergo de-Stalinization and undergo you know, significant changes in the cultural spheres. So socialist realism, it sort of still exists on paper, but there's a much wider range of, of cultural production that's permissible. And in Czechoslovakia, of course, most famously, you have the new wave film movement, you know, of the 1960s um, that's more experimental in character, that's focused on everyday life, um, that in some cases is... is it certainly doesn't have these ideological messages. Uh, it can be in some cases kind of critical of the communist system, at least subliminally. And 
Czechs are very proud of the new wave films. They're, you know, great successes throughout the world. This is the period in the 60s when Czechoslovakia, you know, as one of my sources says, kind of, you know, makes its mark on the world stage again, or, you know, becomes part of the kind of global cultural map once more. But the Soviets don't want to import a lot of these new wave films because they're seen as too sexual. They don't have pro-communist messages, um, you know, or the ideological messages aren't clear. And so that becomes a source of, of tension between the two countries. You know, this is supposed to be this friendship, but you know, the, the Czechoslovaks are saying you kind of don't want our most important cultural export. Um, and there's equal tension in the fact that some of the Soviet culture that Czechoslovaks are most, especially the members of the intelligentsia, are, are most enthusiastic about in this period, you know, are writers like Solzhenitsyn or, the, you know, the poets Yevtushenko, Vaznesiensky. These are kind of poets and writers that are pushing the limits of the Soviet system. And the Soviets don't really want that to be part of their official cultural propaganda in Czechoslovakia. So there become tensions on both sides as their culture um, develops further and becomes, you know, quote unquote, more experimental. And it's unclear what the cultural messages are or the takeaways are of that exchange by the late 1960s. Well, I think this would be then a good segue into discussing the Prague Spring and then the subsequent Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia in August of 68 and how these events affected the friendship. Yeah, for sure. So I, I tell the story um, of the Prague Spring and the invasion in the book through the lens of tourism um, because mass tourism began in 1955 between the two countries and it be quickly became the largest form of face-to-face contacts between um, the two countries' citizens. So by the 1960s, you had roughly 30,000 Soviet citizens every year who were visiting Czechoslovakia as tourists and about the same number of Czechoslovaks who were going to the Soviet Union. And tourism, you know, after I would say like student exchanges, it really became one of the few means um, for Soviet citizens in particular to experience life in Czechoslovakia unmediated, you know, unfiltered um, with their own eyes rather than through these various forms of propaganda or culture. Um, And so when, and and I do focus the chapter primarily on Soviet tourists going to Czechoslovakia um, because that was the records that I had available. They're very rich records available in the Russian archives. And what I found that was so interesting was in 68 during the Prague Spring, you know, this is this period of um, seismic change in Czechoslovakia when political prisoners are being rehabilitated, when the borders are opening, censorship has lifted. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, any kind of culture is, is suddenly accessible and attainable. And Soviet citizens who go, they all have to travel on official tourist groups. They go to Czechoslovakia and they're just shocked during the Prague Spring to see hippies to encounter abstract art, pornography, you know, all of these things that were kind of taboo in the Soviet context, as well as the fact that their Czechoslovak guides and translators are, you know, just telling them all about the Prague Spring. They're often promoting the Prague Spring. Um, They really, 
you know, many Czechoslovaks almost saw themselves as sort of evangelizers of the Prague Spring and their experiment with, you know, a kind of more liberal form of socialism to the Soviets. So that's really shocking for these Soviet tourists. And again, it upends that hierarchy that had existed from the very beginning of that relationship from the early post-war period, you know, of the Soviets as the model for Czechoslovakia. Suddenly Czechoslovaks are saying basically we're the model for you. This is the form of socialism of the future. You know, this is how you build a more dynamic socialist society. And um, so, but then, you know, there's the invasion in August 1968 when the Soviets, you know, send a total of half a million troops, including the troops from the other Warsaw Pact countries, to Czechoslovakia. And there were actually Soviet tourist groups who were in Czechoslovakia during the invasion. And they talk about, you know, how overnight um, they went from this atmosphere that might have sort of tested their limits in some ways, but, you know, still felt fairly comfortable to being called occupiers, um, you know, to not getting service in restaurants, um, to in some cases, you know, tourist buses, um, empty tourist buses were vandalized. Uh, But their whole experience in Czechoslovakia changed. And what was really fascinating was that the Soviet government kept on sending tourists to Czechoslovakia um, in the fall of 1968 and, you know, through 1969, despite the fact that there are anti-Soviet protests going on and that these tourists are, you know, heckled and, and kind of abused in various ways. And so for the Soviets, it's a kind of chance to see with their own eyes a very different side of this Um, story and a different narrative from the narrative their government was telling them, which was that the Czechoslovak people invited the Soviets to come in to kind of put down these Western-sponsored counter-revolutionaries. That was the official Soviet narrative about the Prague Spring. So what's interesting about the Prague Spring is that it was this moment of um, kind of more direct communication between ordinary people in the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia for the first time in that relationship that had by then existed for more than 20 years, um, it was a time when, because censorship was lifted, even these official friendship publications in Czechoslovakia started questioning the friendship project, saying, yes, we do want this close alliance with the Soviets, but we want it on more equal terms. Uh, and we want to discuss all the mistakes that were made in the past. So there's this real kind of moment of almost like kind of glossnosed openness between the two sides. Um, And that continues on a strange level, even through 1969, um, until the Soviets and and the new Hussak government in Czechoslovakia kind of completely clamps down, you know, by about the spring of of 69. Yes, I found that particularly fascinating that they continue to send tourists to Czechoslovakia, Soviet tourists. And I'm wondering if, you know, maybe that was designed to kind of cushion the blow, right, alongside the soldiers. And then I'm wondering if it, to what degree it's connected to what you introduce in Chapter 6 when you examine the post-Warsaw Pact invasion period and particularly the period of normalization, in which you refer to normalization as both the transnational and restorative project. So I was wondering if you could talk about this a little. Yeah, so I think one thing that really surprised me when I was doing my research, I actually initially only set out when I was doing my dissertation, 
I thought the project would end in 68 with the invasion. And I just figured that that was naturally kind of the end of this friendship. I mean, clearly there's a political alliance that exists between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia until 1989 um, with the Velvet Revolution. But I assumed that all that rhetoric and practices of friendship would just clearly have been kind of blown out of the water by the invasion. But it turned out that was really not the case. Um, And in fact, you know, as I mentioned with tourism, it became actually in some ways more important for both the Soviet government and the new government of Gustav Husak, who implemented this policy of normalization in Czechoslovakia, to maintain the friendship project. Um, in the last two decades of of communism in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, the reason for that is that I would say, you know, normalization, there's there's various ways of interpreting it. Um, But I was really taken with um, Kieran Williams, who who wrote about, you know, normalization as this kind of deliberately uninventive project. Um, It's a step away from the tumult that characterized the Prague Spring you know, basically it's an attempt to turn back the clock and make things quote unquote normal, which means going back to the period before the invasion. And that normalcy was of course characterized by friendship between the two countries. So that becomes so important for both sides. Um, For, you know, the government of Husak, they want to keep on being socialists. They want to, you know, maintain their membership in the Warsaw Pact their close alliance with the Soviets. And so they do it in the way they've always done it, which is through these various cultural and social forms of friendship. And for the Soviets, I mean, traditionally in the historiography, normalization is discussed as um, this is something that happened in Czechoslovakia. It's a policy that was implemented in Czechoslovakia, or it can even just refer to the last two decades of communism in Czechoslovakia. It's seen as a domestic um, project. But What I argue in the last chapter of the book is that normalization was actually a transnational project, and it was just as important for the Soviets to normalize relations with Czechoslovakia as it was in the reverse. Um, And that was because for the Soviets, like I said, their propaganda was that, um, you know, the Czechoslovak people invited the Soviet army in. um, And of course, the whole relationship with Czechoslovakia and the other countries of Eastern Europe has been characterized by this idea of socialist internationalism. Um, The Soviets see themselves as an anti-imperialist power, and they believe that their foreign relations are centered on, you know, friendship and benevolence rather than realpolitik and, you know, imperialism, as was, in their view, true in the West. So in order to kind of argue to the Soviet people that, you know, we are not imperialist, we maintain this benevolent power in Eastern Europe, it's really important to do things like maintain tourism, um, or even what I thought was most audacious was that, you know, the Soviet Central Committee was directing the Soviet army in Czechoslovakia to maintain, quote unquote, friendly relations with the local population. So Soviet soldiers were being told to play chess matches or, you know, engage in soccer games with Czechoslovak youth or help locals with their broken down cars or help with the harvest in rural areas. And all of that was on the one hand, you know, just try and sort of quell the anti-Soviet protests that arose in Czechoslovakia. But on the other hand, it was propaganda for the Soviet people to say, 
you know, we're there as um, we were there to put down this anti-communist revolt and people wanted us there. And so we can show this by engaging in this form of friendship. Yeah, I was wondering about that, how that was received on the ground by ordinary people. And then just a follow-up question about film, because you note that film, particularly Soviet film, played a central role during this normalization process in Czechoslovakia. And I was thinking that in the context also, of course, television, right? We think of Paulina Bren's work on television during normalization, and then you discuss a lot uh, about Soviet film during normalization. So I realize those are two separate questions, but maybe you could talk a little bit about those. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in terms of the film question, I I examine um, a film that, you know, the main film that I talk about, well, I talk about film, I guess, in a couple of ways in that chapter. One is that initially after the invasion, Czechoslovaks initiated a boycott of Soviet films that lasted for almost a year. So this was one of their ways of protesting against the invasion was that the state film agency basically refused to screen Soviet films, or when they did, they were kind of pressured to by the Soviets. They would show them at second-rate theaters, you know, at nine in the morning on a weekday at times when no one would come. Um, And also filmmakers in Czechoslovakia made these kind of newsreels, I guess that's the best way to, they were called like film journals, which would be taken from, you know, official news reels, film reels spliced together to take actual footage and make it into anti-Soviet propaganda. Um, And so these films would be shown before regular screenings of films in mostly in Prague in movie theaters um, in the first few months after the invasion. And this just absolutely made the Soviets livid. Um, So this is an example of how Czechoslovaks are kind of taking culture and film, which from the very early post-war period was one of the pillars of this friendship project and kind of turning it against the Soviets. But then in a chapter, I also discuss, as I get into the period of normalization, um, a film that was actually a film made by a Czechoslovak director, Ladislav Brichman. It's called The Song of the Tree and the Rose, and it was produced in 1978. Um, so 10 years after the invasion. And it's a film that was supposed to be pro-Soviet propaganda in Czechoslovakia. And it's about a Soviet veteran um, from World War II who's played by the actor um, Vyacheslav Tikhonov, who actually was the same actor who played the male kind of lead role in May Stars, the 1959 film that I talked about before. So in this 1978 film, The Song of the Tree and the Rose, This veteran comes to Prague, he's an engineer, and he's coming to help build the Prague Metro. But it turns out that he's also coming on this kind of personal mission, because he wants to find the Czech woman named Vera, who he had fallen in love with and had this this brief romance with in 45. And the film, you know, follows his attempts to find this woman who he's not able to find. The last address that he has for her, it turns out, is actually this apartment building that has been demolished in order to build the metro that he's responsible for constructing. Um, But he is tasked by this Prague, you know, metro construction, you know, agency or whatever. Um, They, they send this young secretary to show him around Prague and she develops this crush on him, even though she's like 30 years younger than him. 
Um, and it turns out so that he has these two failed romances in the film, the first with this woman he had met in 1945, who he's not able to find over 30 years later. And the second with this young Czech woman who he basically tells, you know, you're, I'm too old for you. You know, he says something like there's an old proverb that says that like a rose cannot be attached to an old tree. And the movie ends with him flying back to Moscow and her like gazing up with her sunglasses from Prague at the plane. It's a very cheesy and, and honestly terrible film. Um, but what's so interesting about it was that it was supposed to be pro-Soviet propaganda. And yet the film shows inadvertently, I think, all the ways in which even though this friendship project continued through the normalization period, it lost the vitality and the kind of genuineness that had characterized earlier decades. Um, and so there's a sense of almost kind of grief in this film and sadness and poignancy. And I think that gets to your question about the reception of this project in Czechoslovakia during normalization. I think this is a period when you really can't talk about these relations as a form of genuine friendship. Um, for a lot of Czechoslovaks engaging in this friendship project during normalization, it's kind of one of the boxes that they have to tick off in order to, you know, as, as Paulina Bren has written, for example, in order to kind of lead this quiet socialist life that normalization offers them and a fairly high standard of living, you know, they, they engage with a kind of social contract with their government. And one of the elements of that contract that really has not been discussed in the literature is, is friendship with the Soviet Union. So whether it's, you know, traveling on these official friendship trains to the Soviet Union or going to see these Soviet films, or joining these friendship societies, um, those are things that people do, and they become very normal. They become a normal part of normalization, or consuming Soviet products, or studying Russian in school, which remains an obligatory subject. All of those things are people things that shape people's everyday lives, um, but they do them often, you know, without buying into the ideology. They do them more or less by habit and because that's part of that social contract that they kind of have to fulfill in order to have the jobs that they want to have or go to university, um, <clears throat> you know, or just kind of keep on the right side of the regime. And the friendship trains, yeah, I found those really intriguing. So what would be you know, the impetus of being a part of those, participating in that? Yeah, so I wrote about um, <clears throat> the Czechoslovak trade unions organize these friendship trains in starting in 69 and through the early 1970s, these were for their kind of most committed activists. Um, and they were a way of um, rewarding those activists for being on the correct side, as they saw it, of the events of 1968. <clears throat> so candidates to go on these trains, which were basically official delegations, you know, of a couple hundred people, candidates would have to go through a very intensive screening process where trade union authorities would examine their behavior in 68. And they would say, you know, oh, this person opposed, um, you know, the Prague Spring. They stood up for, you know, the healthy forces in the Communist Party. Therefore, they're rewarded by being sent on this all expenses paid trip to the Soviet Union, um, where they were kind of received in the Soviet Union almost as this like official delegation. You know, in some cases, they got to go to Red Square and see the parades on the anniversary of the October Revolution, the big military parades. Um, so it became, 
you know, these people became basically involved in official pro-Soviet propaganda as rewards for having conducted themselves in a way that the normalized party saw as, um, you know, healthy uh, during the Prague Spring. So we're running out of time. I think I'd like to just address your concluding chapter where you close with the topic you began, your introduction with, namely the monument to the tank, the Soviet tank crews. So you use this as kind of a metaphor for telling your story. So maybe you could tell us how this story ends ultimately. Yeah, so I begin and end the book with this monument that was called the Monument to the Soviet Tank Crews in Prague. It was established um, by the Czechoslovak Communist Party um, or, and just government representatives in July 1945. And it was a tank that allegedly was the first tank that the Soviets had driven into Prague um, in May 1945. And so the monument was just basically like this huge granite pedestal with this tank on top of it. And it became the most iconic symbol during the communist period in Czechoslovakia of, you know, the friendship project. Like you would see this image. It actually features at the beginning of the film May Stars. Um, Soviet tourist groups were taken there. But as I discuss in the book, I think it's such an interesting symbol because a tank is, I think, the paradigmatic symbol to most of us of Soviet relations with not just Czechoslovakia, but other countries in Eastern Europe, like East Germany and Hungary. Um, And from the very beginning of the Friendship Project, I say the tank symbolized these kind of dual roles of friendship and violence, um, that the tank in 45, when it was first put up, would have probably symbolized you know, on the one hand, gratitude toward the liberation, the Nazi occupation, you know, was obviously very real and brutal in Czechoslovakia. And there was a lot of genuine gratitude toward the Soviet army, um, which I probably should have said earlier, the Soviets lost approximately 140,000 soldiers in the liberation. So that's, that's obviously huge. Um, But it also, I think, from the very beginning, to some people, you know, who had been victims of, of violence during the liberation would have symbolized that violence. And then after 1968, it became seen as, you know, kind of a slap in the face, like the Soviet army had invaded Czechoslovakia. And here's this monument to the tank, to a tank in, in Prague. So from that time on, it became for, I would say, for most Czechoslovaks, a very kind of negative symbol. And after the fall of communism, there were intense discussions in the Czechoslovak press about what to do about this tank monument. Um, a lot of people, especially younger people, just saw it as you know a symbol of violence. Um, they didn't like the idea that heavy weaponry would be displayed on a normal Prague square, and they wanted to take it down. But some older Czechoslovaks, you know, including communists, still saw it as the symbol of the liberation and didn't want it taken down. And then in 1991. Um, in April 1991, so you know, after communism has collapsed in Czechoslovakia, and just a few short months before the end of the Soviet Union itself, this young Czech artist and sort of enfant terrible, um, Daniel Czerny, he and a group of his friends in the middle of the night engage in this stunt where they paint the tank sculpture pink, um, you know, with spray paint, and they put a massive paper mache middle finger in its center, so it's kind of sticking up. And this creates this whole scandal. Um, It's a diplomatic incident between the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. 
Czerny is initially arrested for defacing uh, a cultural monument in Czechoslovakia, but then members of, and the tank is, you know, dutifully repainted green, but then members of the Czechoslovak parliament who have immunity from prosecution in solidarity with Czerny, they come out and, and repaint it pink. Um, and I really see it as this interesting symbol. Czerny gave a number of interviews where he talked about his motives for doing this stunt. And in some of them, he said it was he was protesting against the Soviets in 68. In some, he said, oh, I was actually just trying to impress a girl. You know, and in one, he finally said, well, yes, it was about politics, but it was also about art and it was just fun. Um, and I thought that that was a really interesting encapsulation of the Friendship Project itself, which had all of these different sides to it. Um, you know, it it did express this kind of genuine friendship between some ordinary citizens in both countries, but it was also, of course, ultimately a political project and people engaged in it for a wide variety of reasons. You know, it was it enabled them to travel abroad at a time when they otherwise couldn't travel or to access foreign culture at a time when, you know, they didn't have access to foreign culture. Um, and ultimately, the result of this stunt of Cherny's was that the monument was removed in June 1991. It was sent to, mil- to a military museum in the Czech Republic. And that I really see as the end of, of the Friendship Project. So I, I kind of liked that you know, being able to begin and end the book with this one symbol that I think is is so potent for the broader friendship project. Yeah, it was a really perfect way of ending the book. Really powerful. Okay, so I think we have time for one or two more questions. I wanted to ask you a broader question about transnational history. Since your work is, you know, based on transnational encounters and engagements, maybe you could recommend a book or two to our readers that deals with transnational engagements. Sure. Um, Well, I mean, I think there's, it's kind of an exciting time to be a transnational historian. And I think especially scholars of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe are really, you know, broadening their horizons to think about these countries um, in the international and global contexts. I would recommend a book that is forthcoming um, by Bridget O'Keefe. Um, it's coming out from Bloomsbury this spring, and it's called Esperanto and Languages of Internationalism in Revolutionary Russia. Um, and it's a very interesting book because uh, it both examines Esperanto, which you know we, we all know, I think, a little bit about as the sort of paradigmatic language of internationalism. Um, she examines its, its roots in the Russian Empire, um, it was, you know, created by Zamenhof, who was a, a Russian Jew in the 19th century. And then she follows the story through the Soviet period and, you know, shows how Soviet Esperantists um, ended up being persecuted in the Stalinist period. Their dreams of belonging to this kind of global international community collided with the Stalinist government's ideas about um you know, it's, it's its own ideas about internationalism, which were very different. So I think that's um, a book that I would recommend to your readers when it comes out. Um, and then, you know, Elidor Mayhilly, um, you know, wrote this great book from Stalin to Mao uh, about Albania and the socialist world. And, 
I think does a fantastic job of, of showing how this, you know, small and what we often think of as peripheral country in Europe engaged successively with all of these major international powers from Yugoslavia to the Soviet Union to Maoist China. So that's a really fascinating overview. Um, and lastly, I would say Eleonore Gilbert, her book, To See Paris and Die, The Soviet Lives of Western Culture, does a brilliant job of examining Soviet internationalism in the 50s and 60s. Um, and she, you know, is just extremely skillful at really um, in-depth um, examinations of things like film and and this question of reception, you know, how Soviets receive foreign culture, Western culture in particular, and how they translated it to make sense um, in their own society. Great suggestions. Thank you. I know you touched briefly on your current project. Did you want to say a few more words about that? We have about a minute or two. Sure. So I'm working on a project that will probably be a book project um, about Russians' development as a world language during the Cold War. And I'm trying to look at the development of the Russian language from two perspectives. One is how the Soviet Union promoted Russian abroad in all three of its so-called worlds, what, what it would have called worlds, um, the socialist countries, the Western capitalist countries, and then what the Soviets would have called the developing countries in post-colonial Africa and Asia in particular. Um, so I'm looking at the Russian language there as a, a Soviet cultural export. But then I'm also looking at how the Soviet unions, how foreign countries use the Russian language in the Cold War to alternatively, depending which country it was, to either assimilate Soviet power in the context of the Eastern Bloc countries, to contest Soviet power um, in the context of the United States, you know, and other, you know, Western capitalist countries, or somewhere sort of in the middle um, in the developing countries. So it's really an attempt to kind of write a social and international history of, of the Russian language in the post-war period. That sounds like an incredible project and so exciting to research. I'm just envisioning the types of documents you're encountering. I really look forward to reading the book and obviously any articles uh, that come out prior to that, but also assigning your work in the classroom. I teach a class on the global cold war, but it sounds like the project also would appeal to a wider, more general readership. Well, thank you. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been such a fascinating conversation and I wish you all the best on your current project. Thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. Thank you.